Welcome back to the Policy Biz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. Welcome to season nine of the podcast. That's right. Nine years of doing the Policy Biz Podcast, and I've got a great lineup of guests coming to you this season. I've got folks from all over the world doing all sorts of great, really interesting work in the fields of data analysis, data visualization, and data communication. And to kick off this season of the show, I'm really excited to welcome Richard Brath to come talk to me about his book, Visualizing with Text. Text is going to be one of the themes you're going to see this season on the show. How do we visualize qualitative data? It's such a big challenge, and there are more tools, more platforms, and more ways to analyze and visualize those data. So I talked to Richard this week about his book, about ways to visualize qualitative data. I hope you'll check it out. I hope you'll learn a little bit, and I hope you'll go over to policyviz.com where I've got an entire collection of qualitative data visualization examples in my ever-growing library. So here we go with season nine. Here's my conversation with Richard Breath. Hey, Richard. Good morning. How are you? Great to see you. Hi, John. Great to see you too. Thanks. How's your summer in uh, glorious Toronto? Summer's been awesome so far. <laughs> it's been a great <laughs> summer so far. Great. Great. And getting get some time on the lake there? Uh, lake, uh, we're surrounded by lakes here, uh, right. of many different sizes. So Lake Ontario is the lake associated with Toronto that I can see out my window from where I'm sitting Pretty and good. actually haven't been to. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. But I have been to many of the other lakes. <laughs> All right. Okay. So as a native of Buffalo, I have been to eerie and uh, and been swimming in both of those lakes although mm -hmm. maybe not the best choice i don't know I mean, yeah i've spent a lot of time in uh huron already this summer oh, okay so if you know right. your great That's lakes nice. yeah okay uh, so we got a little great lakes quiz trivia going on for folks who are listening yeah, it's exactly good, it's a good start um awesome well thanks for for coming on the show so you are pretty much right now the master of the qualitative data field and there's not a ton of thorough resources like your book on visualizing qualitative data. So I wanted to start there. Um, what drew you to writing a book about visualizing qualitative data? Uh, so I was really interested as a longtime practitioner in visualization and what you can and can't do. And there's certain things that you do and you create bar charts or pie charts or whatever, and, and things just flow very nicely and it communicates what you need to communicate. But then you run into problems where uh, the kind of tool set that comes with visualization doesn't work, doesn't fit as well, right? Like what happens when you have more than 10 categories, right? right. Uh, you kind of run out of colors at a, at a certain point, mm -hmm. right? Um, what yeah. about word clouds, right? Like certainly there's got to be something better than word clouds. <laughs> um, what about countries, right? Like if you're viewing data about countries, there's 200 countries or, you know, maybe 150 that you got data on. And there's got to be something more than just maps, right? Maps are mm -hmm. obvious because they work and you can fit everything in, but, you know, there's got to be other techniques. And then news, we were looking at uh, things with news and like news is all text, but it's super important uh, to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people need to trade and make decisions off of news. So you want to be able to do something with that more than just the text. And it's getting bigger and streaming more and whatever. So you're like, there's all of these problems where text is an element of it, and you're struggling with how to fit those into visualization. 
Right. I just want to add one yeah. more quote on that, and I just got to go find it because I'm going to garble it uh, <laughs> if I uh, if I don't find it. Maybe I have it here. It's a book that I just started reading. Okay, so uh, and there's one more thing that I want to add on here, and that is uh, a lot of visualization focuses on measured data, you know, metrics. And mm -hmm. there's this been this obsession, obviously, you know, in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years about, you know, you can't manage what you can't measure. And, right. uh, you know, GE Six Sigma and all of these things that are super focused on measurement, right? Yeah. Uh, but I was reading this great book, maybe it's from the 60s or 70s, uh, by this guy named William Cameron, who I hadn't found before. And right in there, he's got this quote that says, not everything that can be counted counts. And not everything that counts can be counted. Yeah. Right. So that's a brilliant quote that kind of encapsulates the importance of qualitative information mm -hmm. and why that needs to be an important part of the uh, discussion that's brought to the table. I bet yeah. you right now in uh, Russia, right, there's a lot of infographics of data that are being used to justify the war. Right. 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 And, uh, people are going to believe it because it looks like data and data doesn't lie, right? Mm -hmm. But there's more to it than that. And uh, we know that data can be manipulated, but we also know that you can do all kinds of things with framing and create bias and so forth, right? And how are some of those things going to be dealt with? Some of those things have to be dealt with from a qualitative perspective. Right. Did you start your career in the data field thinking about qualitative data or was this sort of your own personal evolution sort of not culminating because that sounds like an endpoint, but right. growing up to writing this full sort of book on qualitative data? Right. So uh, I grew up, if you will, in um, <laughs> the field of architecture, designing buildings. Right. Yeah. And uh there you go through uh, a design studio in your education. And in that process, you learn to question a lot of things and mm -hmm. you bring a lot of different data to bear on the different ways that you're doing things, but you're also bringing a lot of qualitative information. And uh, the system of evaluation in architecture is often uh, critique. So critique is asking a lot of probing questions. Mm -hmm. Why did you do that? Why is this the way this is? Why could we not choose something else? And you do that to avoid um, you know, honing in too quickly on a solution because mm. there might be better solutions and you might just be on like some little local optimum and there may be some better, better ways to do things. And so that notion of always probing and questioning uh, your tools, I think becomes very important, right? Or, you know, uh, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail type of problem right. Right. Uh, occurs. And so uh, there is a need to look beyond that. And that came from that architectural background. Mm -hmm. And I recognized that was happening when I started getting into those previous discussions about text and yeah. like the visualization tools aren't fitting right. And so you're just still hammering all these visualization nails in and you're going like, I'm doing it, but it's not right. Right. And then the second part of it was that I would propose to clients like, hey, you know, you've got this stuff with news. We should be doing more with news, but I didn't have good answers for them. Yeah. And, you know, they weren't going to spend a bunch of money to do something where there wasn't a good answer for. So you yeah, sure. kind of had to go off and start saying, well, it's on me. I've got to start looking for some better things. It's not out there in the in the literature right. uh, of the and the tools of the field. Yeah. So I want to come back to tools in a bit because I'm sure there are lots of people wondering about a lot of things about the tools. So I, wanna, I do want to come back to that. But I want to ask about 
do you think that people's primary challenge with visualizing qualitative data is winnowing the qualitative data down? So when I think about qualitative data in my world, I think about interviews and focus groups and, and you know, you have this long transcript that's pages long. Is that the biggest challenge or is it the actual act of taking what is already a curated passage of text and figuring out the right visual form? I think it's both. Um, you know, it's still a challenge to work with all of that unstructured yeah. text. You can yeah. get so much great information out of an interview, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's all valuable, but how do you uh, bring that together is, is one problem, right? Yeah. And the yeah. second problem is, okay, now that you've got your nuggets, like, what do you do? Is it a word cloud or yeah. what else is it? And if it's the what else is it, you often find that if you start with a visualization, the text just doesn't fit. Right. Mm -hmm. like, right. It doesn't yeah. fit in the bars yeah. beside the bars. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like the just yeah. the visualizations don't have space <laughs> for text. So right. you know, it gets pushed out to the uh, to the perimeter or somewhere else, right? So that's that's why today most of the the you know the, a lot of the good examples in narrative data today is uh, like a news report where you have your block of text, your visual, your block of text, your mm -hmm. visual, your block of text, because that's the easiest way to work with it uh, today. Mm. But it does yeah. mean then that if you take the visual, you miss all the context that's in the text. Yeah. If you take the text, you miss the context that's there in the visual. Um, so it has a good flow for the person who's reading the story, but for the next person who's taking pieces on that and quoting and using that somewhere else, you're always going to be missing something. Right. I think that's a really good point because I, I, I think, and I'm in the midst of teaching a class at Georgetown University, and and the recent assignment was to grab a graph and critique it, write up a you know page or two critique. And I've seen a, a little bit of this in some of these critiques where they take a graph out of some, you know, Washington Post, New York Times article, whatever it is, and critique the graph, which in some ways is fair, but also it misses the lead in, usually the lead in into that graph. Right. And yeah, I think we often miss that when we sort of take a graph off of some website and start talking about whether, you know, its merits, but miss the lead in or the, or the lead out. I don't know what the next part right. is, but yeah. Yeah, completely agree. <laughs> um, so, um, okay, so you've mentioned the word cloud a few times. So let's dive in because this, in my experience, is like every person I know who is primarily a qualitative researcher is familiar with the word cloud. They have probably made a word cloud. They're generally unsatisfied with the word cloud. So where do you come down on the word cloud? Uh, so I'm generally unsatisfied with the word cloud. <laughs> generally word unsatisfied <laughs> word clouds so so word clouds have a place and and one of the things that they actually do very well is they have a visceral appeal right yeah and in uh communications uh a visceral element is really valuable sometimes right yeah. and uh you know don norman talks about this in the uh, psychology of everyday things or is it the sorry it's the design of everyday design, things the yeah. title changed yeah. in his second edition or something like that to to get better sales and it worked you got a lot more sales out of it anyways uh that visceral thing that immediately grabs you and engages you and brings you in can be uh really useful and word clouds yeah. do that right like you got the size and the colors and the angles and yeah. all of those things right and and your mind will automatically read the text so you're you know between the size and the colors and the shapes and those you know big words you are automatically uh dragged into 
uh, a word cloud. So there are, you know, something to be said for what word clouds can do. Right. Then on the other hand, after that, the words cloud don't actually do very much. That's where, <laughs> they, so you've hit your limit. So you got this visceral engagement, yeah. and it's all sizzle, right? And then you go for the steak and there's no steak there, right? Yeah. It would, right. Be the, uh, would be the analogy. And uh, I think that was one of the motivating factors for me, right? Like is every time you'd have this conversation about qualitative data, the only thing that people could pull out of their toolbox was a word cloud. And you say, right. oh, there's got to be something better. Yeah. And you dig and you'd go, well, uh, you, you know, I, I don't know. Right. Right. <laughs> I don't know what's better. So one of the uh, first visualizations, uh, very early visualizations that I did when I started going down this path was the, uh, you know, oh, yeah, there's got to be something better. And so instead of just counting the words in the book, which is what you do in a word cloud, right? Mm -hmm. So I did one pass to count the words and then from those words, figured out which ones were, were people, right? So that's, uh, yeah. that's a, a thing called entity extraction these days. Mm -hmm. um, so you now have the people and then you say, okay, I'm now going to do a pass again where I, I look for just those people and I'm looking for adjectives on either side of their names. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to get adjectives associated with those people. And so I'm just doing word cloud, word counts, the same mm -hmm. that you do in a word cloud. But now you've got uh, people and mm -hmm. their adjectives associated right. with them. And, right. and so now I've got something that's a little bit more meaningful than just words that are isolated. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and so there's a little bit more meaningfulness that you can work with in the data. And then mm -hmm. visually, you can do something with that to, uh, to do the meaningfulness. And then uh, in the book, I have... Uh, stem and leaf plots, right? Where it's essentially the, uh, the noun, the person, mm -hmm. the character, and the adjective uh, beside, and it's the list of adjectives, and it's just the weight on the adjective. So it's not right. like word clouds where it's size, it's just the weight. So it doesn't have that same kind of gee whiz wow effect of a word mm -hmm. cloud, but it has a content gee whiz wow effect in that uh, you'll see, uh, I ran it through, uh, for example, uh, Grimm's fairy tales, right? Mm -hmm. So these are fairy tales from like 1700s, uh, you know, rural Germany. Uh, and, uh, and you get like the king is old and great. The princess is young and beautiful. Uh, the witch is uh, wicked and old. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's like it's it's right there in Grimm's fairy yeah. tales. All of these biases um, are right there in the adjectives. They just bubble right up and, and pop right out. So they pop right out in terms of the data. You can represent that visually. It's got that impact and wow uh, effect, not viscerally, but uh, at the second level uh, in Norman's book that I am now forgetting. Right, um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I was like, yeah. you, you've now got some meaningful insight that you're gaining out of that data. Right. Right. So I want to come to a few other visualization types in, in a moment, but, but let's touch on tools real quickly. Cause I'm sure yep. people are like, this is a great idea. I've got some interviews I've done on such and such. And I want to know how people are describing these things. So there are two parts here. Mm -hmm. There's the tools that you use to analyze the data, the text mm -hmm. data, and then there's the tools that you use to do the visualizations. So can we start with the tools or the programs that you use to do the actual data analysis piece? Right. So uh, this work started in like 2013, 14. And uh, at that point, uh, I just picked up Python, mm -hmm. uh, which I wasn't deep in knowledge in Python, but seemed like a, a great tool because there were various libraries uh, available mm -hmm. in Python for crunching text. And uh, I just wanted like the simplest tools for crunching text. And uh, in Python, there were tools like um, NLTK and Spacey that okay. were just libraries that you could pull in. And they use it as, uh, as, as teaching 
Uh, and so there were lots of great uh, explanatory uh, reference material so you could figure it out and it wasn't complicated. Okay, I want just the nouns and I could write a little bit of code to get just the nouns or I want just the adjectives and, and so mm -hmm. on. So it was a, a simple programming tool that I could use to uh, extract the bits out of the text that I wanted. Um, most recently, I've been playing with what are called transformer models. So these are these neural networks that um, do like uh, like Google Translate. They do these mm -hmm. amazing translations or amazing summarizations. I'm sure you've seen in the news things about yeah. GPT-3 and BERT and so forth. And uh, I'm just a neophyte there, but they're really pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, you can give them some complex text and say, summarize it. And um, nine times out of 10, you'll get like an amazing summary that you'll go like, right. that's like, you know, you did a really good job there. And then one time out of 10, you'll get something that's like completely out of left field and you have no right. idea what this model has done. Yeah. Uh, so a human is still very required in working with those. And you have to be very careful, right? Because, well, what about those other nine times out of 10 where you assumed that it did a good job maybe in one or two of those there's like right. some hidden biases or some other things that you hadn't considered you're just getting enamored with the tool but i think it's uh you know in the future those tools will become more and more important to mm -hmm. uh qualitative data analysis they'll become very big uh yeah. but in the near term and if you want to like deliberately have control over every little thing that you're doing something like python and mm -hmm. uh, an nltk or spacey is is gonna do a lot for you so do you find, for example, in the in the noun adjective example, uh, do you find that you will run the code and then you will go through and check each one? Because I can imagine, I can't come yeah. off the top of my head, like a noun is actually, in this case, an adjective, you know, yeah. uses an adjective. Yeah, these tools are not always perfect. Um, yeah. And again, uh, tools are getting better all the time. Right. Uh, but that kind of uh, validation you still want to yeah. do. So in the book, there's an example with the noun and the adjective. Yeah. When I run it, and I think actually that demo is on the uh, on the supplementary site for the book where I've got the interactive demo. Yeah. If you point at the adjective, it will show you a tooltip that says, here's the adjective in context. In and, context, uh, yeah. And if it's not there, it should be in the tooltip. It's in the tooltip. It's in the uh, when I originally wrote the code just on my local laptop, that was my debugging tool to say, oh, what's going yeah, on? Smart. Am I getting right. the right thing out of here? So using tooltips as a debugging tool. Yeah. Uh, so you, you crunch the words, but you also keep the whole context around for debugging purposes and then right. use it interactively in your visualization to see what you've got going on. Right. Really smart. So you're using the tooltip, even though no one else we know will <laughs> click on tooltips. Right. But for you, when you're working with your data, then you don't have to have right. the book over here. Yeah, right. that, that's yep. smart. Um, okay, so that's really helpful. I'll put links to, to all these Python libraries and, and to the supplementary site, of course, for the book on, on the show notes. Okay, so now we've got our data. So now what about actually visualizing the data? So you've mentioned a stem and leaf plot. I like the, um, I can't remember what you call them. Maybe they're called word lines where you have Microtext the words. Lines. Microtext, yes. yeah, you have yeah, them in, yeah, yeah. in the line themselves, yeah. um, which we'll talk about in a little bit because I've tried to do it in Excel and it's not. <laughs> It just doesn't work. Let's just put it that way. Um, so what's your main toolkit for the visualization piece? Usually for visualizations, uh, I'm working with D3. Mm -hmm. uh, underneath D3 is uh, SVG, so Scalable Vector Graphics. Uh, scalable Vector Graphics has uh, built-in uh, ability to work with words just as it does for lines and paths and so forth. Uh, so if you're just trying to put labels or text on a line, like the microtext that you're talking about, mm -hmm. then D3 and SVG work fine. Mm -hmm. When you're trying to work with larger blocks of text, like mm -hmm. whole paragraphs, 
Uh, SVG isn't really oriented to paragraphs, so there I've tended to uh, avoid. Uh, in some cases, I've done D3, and you have to do a lot more math to space out the text and get it right. to lay out and split into lines. And it's like, you should never have to do that. <laughs> you know, our programming tools should be, the tools yeah. should be able to do stuff like that. And that's right. never become part of the spec and, and whatever. Um, so there I'll just use like HTML and divs and, okay. uh, and move divs around. Um, and uh, sometimes what I'm doing these days is I'll use D3 to create the divs. Uh, sometimes, well, if I'm already processing the text over in Python, then I'll just generate um, HTML out of the Python. Right. Um, I have to say my tool chain isn't necessarily the best tool chain, right? Like I'm using Python yeah. to do text processing and I'm using JavaScript to do uh, the visualization. Visual it's like, you know what? Just pick one, Richard. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I suspect that, well, D3 probably can't do the analysis piece. I would suspect somewhere buried in Python, and I'm not a Python person, but buried in Python, you could probably make right. some of these visualizations. Right. And I think but, that's just, you know, the comfort thing. I mean, yeah. there are actually are some fun little libraries on the uh, supplementary website. Somebody mm -hmm. made a uh, little uh, JavaScript library for text processing called Compromise, Compromise.js. So I've used that one a couple of times, like, oh, that's fun. So now I can just do that in JavaScript. But I still yeah. find like, well, you know, I'm still familiar with Python right. text. So I just go back and use Python anyways. Right. Well, it also seems valuable to your point about adding tool tips or other pieces for your own visualization or analysis workflow that helps you in this process. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, I can imagine, like in my head, it's like, okay, I've made the visualization. Here's the book. I'm going to leaf through each page of Grimm's fairy tales and try to find each of these yeah. pieces, which yeah, is, is going to be difficult. Um, okay. So the book has, I'm just going to say countless because I haven't tried to count countless different visualizations, obviously using text. Um, so I have two last questions for you. So most of the book uses Alice in Wonderland. And I'm curious, is it just like, <laughs> does it just lend itself well to the, to the book or was it just like your favorite book? Like what is it about Alice in Wonderland? So there's interesting uh, Alice in Wonderland was not, um, conscious mm -hmm. at the beginning of the book. At the beginning of the book, I was just writing and I was looking for, uh, you know, oh, here's a good example of this. Here's a good example of that. Yeah. Here's a good example of that. And at a certain point, you're going like, I'm, I'm processing different texts all over the place. And, you know, maybe I should try to synchronize around one of them. And uh, just before the book came out, um, Michael Friendly and uh, some of his collaborators published this uh, review of visualizations on the Titanic. And mm -hmm. it was uh, really interesting because there's something like 20 uh, different visualizations that they had found of the Titanic data. So the Titanic data has been around for like a hundred years. And, um, you know, even right after it sank, there was like the first visualization was like a couple days later in a newspaper. Sure. Right. And, and there've been countless visualizations since. And you're looking through, you're going like, these are very different kinds of things. It's one data set. And, very different kinds of ways of visualizing it. So even if you're focused just on quantitative visualization, it's a really good thing to go look at at, at that paper to say like, wow, like what are people actually doing with this thing? Uh, how many different ways are there visualizing it? And of course, there's many different visual ways to visualize it because there's many different stories yeah. in the data that you can extract, right? So I said, well, you should be able to do something like that 
from a text perspective and say, mm -hmm. well, not just that I'm showing an example here, an example here, an example here, but should be able to take a text and say, you know, look at all the different ways to visualize it. And uh, and then you get into like, okay, so what text should it be? Yeah. Um, I don't want to do the Bible because who knows what's going to come out from that. And I don't want to offend anyone. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I don't want to use Harry Potter because there's probably, you know, copyright police. Uh, yeah. If you just use it ever so slightly the wrong way. <laughs> um, and so Alice was just a, a really good one because everybody, yeah. not everybody, a lot of people know Alice. It's been around right. for a long time. You've got some association with it, whether you've seen the movies, whether you actually read it or, or so forth. So that's why Alice uh, bubbles up. And then follow mm -hmm. on that's not in the book. Uh, I've done a couple of, uh, I've done a paper and a couple of talks on the how many different ways have people visualized right. Alice, right? And I think uh, the count is something like 72 yeah. now that I've got. Like, it's just, yeah, lots of people use it. And, and it's great right. because you can extract different kinds of things out of it, depending on what it is that you're analyzing and what tool that you're using and what you're going after. And so uh, there's there's these wonderful different things. Uh, you know, one of my favorites, you know, things that I would never have considered. Uh, and so an artist did a visualization of Alice in Wonderland. What does it sound like in different languages? Oh, and they right. use that thing where they convert the text into the international phonetic alphabet. Mm -hmm. So you can take the text in every language, convert it into its international phonetic alphabet, and the phonetic alphabet gives you what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And then you can build up distributions of all the different sounds. And you say, oh, oh nice. so Russian sounds like this, and Portuguese sounds like this, right? Yeah. Uh, and they're all based on Alice. Uh, and so Alice is just the point of normalization for doing the comparison. Right. Right. But you get this incredible analysis that comes out of it. It's like, wow, you know really cool things that yeah. people do and yeah. the funny thing for me about that one is that wasn't a linguistics person that wasn't a visualization person that was a person from fine arts who did that right mm. like really amazing possibilities yeah it is true when you i think when you have that singular data set and you can say hey and it's quantitative as well right there's not yeah. just a bar chart there's this chart and this chart and this chart yeah mm -hmm. i think that's i think that's a great theme um so my last question for you is do you have a favorite of, let me put it this way. You, you can answer this question any way you like, but I guess, is there a favorite graph in the book or is there a favorite version of your, your collection of 72 Alice in Wonderland visualizations? <laughs> um, there are many favorites in both. Uh, that's always the challenge of asking yeah. you, which is your favorite? Um, and uh so I've made many different visualizations. I'm actually going to say one that's not my own, but mm. one that really early in my, my uh, research that, uh, so in my research process, I said, there's got to be better ways of visualizing text, right? Mm -hmm. And if there are better ways, well, we've been, we've, we've had like the printing press for 500 years and we've had medieval scribes and other people writing stuff down before that. So there's going to be hints mm -hmm. out there. You just got to find them in the historical yeah. record. And if I can find some of those hints, it's going to help me understand lots of other kinds of visualizations that can be made. Right. So uh, from that, I would say there was uh, the very first encyclopedia which was called Cyclopedia in the UK, uh, published in 1728. And uh, it has 
within its table of contents. It's something completely new, right? So they created a visual table of contents. I'll just pull this out. And so I don't know if, is that coming through? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. So for the video, video folks who are watching this, you can see it for the audio folks. It looks like a, well, I'll let you try to describe it. Yeah. So, uh, so I'll describe it then and yeah. say, basically it's a tree. So as a mm -hmm. visualization, we understand what is a tree. It's a hierarchy. And uh, on the left side is uh, some text that says something along the lines of all knowledge is either, and then it splits in a branch, and then the sentence carries on to the next branch, mm -hmm. and you can read it's either, you know, uh, physical or it's metaphysical, and then you can take each of those branches, and it just keeps branching out, 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 right. and it's a fully readable um, paragraph, or even like, it's a fully readable couple of paragraphs of text. So as text... Mm -hmm. You know, wow, like it's this fully readable thing. But as a visualization, it's also structured as a visualization, as a, as a hierarchy. And furthermore, within that visualization, uh, you know, this is a printer just working with the letters in their little box yeah. in 1728 that they have. But they have italics. They have superscripts. They have small caps. They have spacing. So they're using all of that to like the different branches and the different chapters in the encyclopedia. Uh, each chapter is like in, in small caps. And the major areas are in italics. So you can kind of read it linearly right. if you want. You can just skim it for the chapter headings. Mm -hmm. You can walk through it in a, so many different ways, right? And it's using visualization techniques, it's using typographic techniques, and it's just using, you know, reading techniques yeah. all combined into one. And that was, uh, for me, uh, incredibly uh, mind-blowing, if you will, yeah. um, just yeah. to stumble across that and say, you know, how, where, why did that come from? And you can find earlier examples where they did parts of that and so forth. So, so it does have a natural evolution and it kind of disappears because we're not familiar with it today anymore. Um, but it was this great insight into how visualization of structure and text can live together mm -hmm. in one simple visualization. And so for me, uh, that is my favorite out of the, out of the whole book. You know, I should be picking one of my own and, <laughs> right, uh, right, you know, right, selling right. posters. Um, <laughs> but right. uh, uh, so, so I have lots of my own favorites out of, right. out of everything, but I, I won't go into those. And, and like you've said, it's, it's really interesting in different audiences. Some people love the micro lines. Some people love Grimm's fairy tales. There's one of emotion words that people love. Mm -hmm. It's another one of songs. Uh, and so it's fun that way to when you're able to show your own work and get engagement and get responses yeah. uh, from audiences. But in this case here, I'll say, uh, you know, my favorite is, is that one because that was really the gem that uh, really started opening things up a lot for me rather yeah. than just thinking about things as like little labels in a word cloud. Right, 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 right. That you can combine words, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, and then in a visual form. And structure and structure, your visual yeah. attributes like right. uh, italics like and italics caps and, and whatever yeah. and bring That's all great. of that together. That's great. And do it in a simple way. Yeah. Um, well, Richard, it's a great book. It's my favorite book on qualitative data viz. Everyone should check it out. Um, and thanks so much for uh, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. 
And thanks to everyone for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you learned a lot. There are more guests coming up on the show in the coming weeks, of course. I've also got a bunch of things in the works. I'm trying to get some more blog posts out there. I've got a whole lineup of video recordings to share with you on my YouTube channel. And of course, I'm still trying to grow my Winnow community. Winnow is a text messaging app where I share one, two, three, or more texts per week about data and data visualization. You can sign up for a free tier where you're going to one or two texts a week, or you can sign up for the paid tier for only five bucks a month. It's like a cup of coffee. Uh, you get more information, more details, more coupons, more special things delivered right to your phone. Well, okay, that wraps it up for this week. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A whole team helps bring you the Policy Viz Podcast. Intro and outro music is provided by the NRIs, a band based here in Northern Virginia. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs. Design and promotion is created with assistance from Sharon Satsuki-Ramirez. And each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. The policy of this podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. But if you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Winnow app, PayPal page, or Patreon page, all linked and available at policyviz.com.